0: to Acts chapter 14, that'd be great. been preaching through the book of Acts here for a while. We started at the beginning of the year, I believe. Um, we've made it halfway now to Acts 14. Chapter 13 covered the first half of Paul's miss- missionary journey. that out of the way? The first half of Paul's missionary journey. And um, this chapter, chapter 14, will cover the second half of Paul's first missionary journey. So, why don't we stand up and we'll just read the first three verses, because we're going to go through all of them anyway. Now, it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in you and give thanks to you um, for this time that we have in your word. We ask that you would use it for good and to the glory of your name. To build up the saints in the faith and to equip them that they might go forth from here and do the work of the ministry. On fire for you, their hearts in love with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. could be seated. I did post um, that sermon on the Reformation and self-government, which I preached on November 3rd in honor of our observance of the 502nd uh, anniversary of the Reformation. At the 500th anniversary, I preached on the Reformation and civil government, 501st Reformation and family government. This year, I preached on the Reformation and self-government. It is posted now at sermonaudio.com if you'd like to listen to that. And I plan on getting more sermons up there also as we continue through Acts. I think we got up to Chapter 10 posted so far, and we'll try to get the rest posted here over the next few weeks. Notice here in verse 1 that though chapter 13 ended with Paul declaring he would now go to the Gentiles, here in Iconium he follows what would be his usual mode of operation. He goes first to the synagogue to engage the Jews. He followed this pattern, I believe, for two reasons. One, it gave the Jews of any location opportunity to hear the gospel and know the Lord. And that seems to have paid off big here in Iconium, as it says a great multitude, both of Jews and Greeks, believed. The second reason I believe Paul followed this pattern is because he used the synagogue as a platform to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember, there were Gentile proselytes to Judaism. god fears We've seen them throughout this book of Acts, and they were also surely here, in Iconium. So, he would use the synagogue as a platform to not only declare the truth of the gospel to the Jews, but also to reach the Gentiles. He would then be able to more fully reach them by debating the Jews, by gathering in meetings in houses, and by street preaching. And this approach paid off big as it would lead to Gentiles coming to know the Lord and churches being established, as we see in the remainder of the book of Acts here. So Ivan is sitting back there, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, is going to put a little screen up here of Paul's first missionary journey because this will go through the completion of the missionary journey. So here we are over here. They started in Antioch of Syria. And they went down here to Salamis, went over here to whatever that place is. It's hidden behind that device there. Um, Then they went up here to Pamphylia. Then they went to Antioch and Pisidia. So here's where they've come now, to Iconium. And they're going to go down here to Lystra, which we're going to learn about here in this chapter. Over here to Derbe, back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Antioch and Pisidia down to Perga again, over to Talia, which is a port town, and they grab a boat, and they go back to Cilicia and over to Antioch. And their first missionary journey is complete. And they've traveled hundreds of miles, and their next missionary journey is going to go far beyond that. So there's another map there too, right, Ivan? Yeah, so this one, I don't know what they were thinking, but it looks like little pins. I thought it was kind of cool. A little thread's going through, it looks like, or something. And then there's another one here giving you a bigger view of the geographic area. Do you have that last one? So, like, here you see um, where they're at. They made it this far west. Next missionary journey, they're going to go all the way up over into here. Make it up through here. All around here. So they're going to go much further next time um, on the second missionary journey. Iconium was named after the Greek word icon, which means image. This is due to the Greek myth that Prometheus had created images. He had created images of people in that area from mud and breathed life into them. I find it interesting, as I have read of many ancient cultures, how the truth of Scripture, though distorted, is found among them. In this case, we see what we know as the Imago Dei, man being made in the image of God from earth and breathed to life. Makes you think these stories of man's beginnings, as seen in Scripture, were passed on orally and were known, but then, of course, twisted for their own false ends, to give credibility to their own false gods. But all was not to stay positive in what had occurred here at Iconium, with all these Jews and Greeks believing It says in verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. And here we see a trait man is and always has been very prolific at. Poisoning the minds of men against other men. Man's renowned at that. Just read history. But look what it says in verse 3. It says, Therefore they stayed there a long time. Speaking boldly in the Lord, who is bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Notice they stayed there a long time. Notice they didn't run away from the conflict. They confronted their false allegations and their theological lies. This is wholly different than the churchmen of our day who easily capitulate, where conflict is to be avoided. And everyone just wants to be liked. And don't get me wrong, there are times to simply walk away or to deflect. But there are also times when one must dig in and make a stand. And this is what Paul and Barnabas did here. They made a stand and they stayed a long time. And the Lord affirmed the truth of their message with signs and wonders, the scripture says here. And here we see the second Scriptural Reason for Signs, Wonders, and Miracles. The first that we learned here in the book of Acts, and we spent a whole sermon discussing, is that signs, wonders, and miracles provide an opportunity to proclaim his law, word, and gospel. And here we see the second reason for them is to affirm the truth being proclaimed. One provides the opportunity for proclamation, the other affirms what has been proclaimed. This is how God uses signs, wonders, and miracles. Men are not converted because of the signs, wonders, and miracles in themselves. They simply provide opportunity to present the gospel to men, provide a platform to do so. They're also used to affirm the truth of what has been proclaimed in the gospel. Our narrative continues in verses 4 through 6, and it says, But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers, the magistrates, to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region." Wicked men will always use the magistrates to try and accomplish their wicked ends. I see this throughout my reading of history. The magistrates are given of God to be his ministers in the earth, to punish evildoers and reward those who do good, Paul says in Romans 13. But wicked men always want to pervert the magistrates' God-given purpose and function and use them to reward evil. And punish those who do good. And we see this time and time again in our own day when we go out to minister for Christ. But before we look at how the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, responded to the raised persecution against them, let us relish in verse 4. Let us relish in verse 4. Notice what it says there. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. Notice there was no small stir due to the truth of his law, word, and gospel. The town was divided. And didn't Jesus speak of this? He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Amen? This is good, what is happening in this town. It is needed, and yet... All of American Christianity would view such tumult and division as a sign what is happening in Iconium is not of God. They would condemn it and avoid it. That's what most would do. When we're out at the universities ministering on behalf of Christ, or out at some busy gathering, and tumults break forth, and people are gnashing their teeth against the truth of God's word, what do the Christians oh, this can't be of God? They told George Whitfield that. When thousands would gather and all kinds of crazy stuff would go on, they'd tell George George this isn't of God. And the truth of the matter is, it's a sign of God at work in the hearts of men when this kind of division is taking place, when this type of striving is going on. We know this is true. And the reason for it is because there's a battle going on for the hearts of men. That's why the division. That's why the tumult, that's why the strife. Look at 2 Corinthians. Keep your finger here at Acts 15. And look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14 says, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life, leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? When the truth of God's law, word, and gospel is declared to men, there is a battle that takes place for the hearts and minds of men. Some will believe Others will reject. That is what takes place. If you always want to be liked, and you go out and you share the gospel and you get rejected, guess what? You're not going to want to share the gospel anymore. You're not going to want to declare the truth of God's law and word anymore when men reject you. Because boo-hoo for me, I feel belittled and rejected. And I don't like rejection So I'm not going to tell people the truth anymore. Okay, that is so non-Christian thinking, it's not even funny. In Christ we are able to be bold and declare the truth of his law, word, and gospel to men. Make him known to men. Not in some pompous, arrogant way or some harsh or railing way, but just being true to him and true to the truth. Making him known to men is massively important. So it says here in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. That verb there, leads us, leads. The construction there is only one time used ever in the New Testament, and this was actually a term that was used regularly regarding the Roman generals. Okay? And when the Roman generals would come into a conquered territory, they would literally put up these fragrances. There would be a parade route established, and each general had their own fragrance, their own distinct smell. And everybody had to come when this was taking place. Whether you liked the Roman general and his rule, or you hated the Roman general and his rule, everyone had to come and experience the fragrance of this triumphal conqueror who Christ is. He's the ruler of the nations. His law, word, and gospel is not just for individuals and for all of men. It is also for nations. Understand that. And it says in verse 15, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among you, among those, pardon me, who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So we make known his fragrance, not by using some incense that gives off a certain smell. Paul's making the analogy, we dispense the fragrance of God through the proclamation of his word and gospel. Amen? That's how we diffuse his fragrance in society. And it says in verse 16, to the one we are the aroma Of death leading to death. Those would be those who reject his gospel and rule. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Those would be those who believe his gospel and accept his rule for their lives. Amen. Hugely important stuff. So relish verse four. There's no small stir, there's strife, there's a tumult, there's friction. That's the kingdom of God at work in the lives of men. And it is good. Praise his name. This is good, what is happening in this town. So persecution has sprung up. And what did Paul and Barnabas do before they were able to stone them? That is how severe things had gotten. They want to stone them, kill them. So what do they do? They flee. And fleeing is a biblical response to persecution. Jesus spoke of it, Paul did it numerous times, and Christian men down through history have done it. That is how Christian men first came to this country known as America. They were persecuted and they fled. There's a long, fine history of fleeing found within church history. There's nothing to be shameful ashamed of when you have to move on or leave. You may want to imprecate and wipe the dust off your feet like Paul and Barnabas did at the end of chapter 13. Remember our sermon last week on imprecation? How important it is, how biblical it is? There's nothing to be ashamed of by fleeing. It's how God expands his kingdom in the earth. He'll actually use the wicked devices and actions of the magistrates and the people to move us to another locale to bring the truth of his word there. Possibly and hopefully of people more willing to believe it. To embrace it. This is all good. Fleeing is not a bad thing. They fled. When persecution arises, you must decide what to do. To stay and make a stand and perhaps be martyred. Or to flee, and God does have different things for each of us in regards to matters even like that. So they flee to Lystra and Derby, and verse 7 says they were preaching the gospel there. Verse 7 says, and they were preaching the gospel there. <laughs> That's what Christian people do. They didn't just go and find some cave to dwell in and hunker down Till all was done. No, they went there and preached the gospel. Made him known to men. They came to Lystra first, and here Paul did not go into the synagogue, but rather did some street preaching. And in an incident strikingly similar to Peter and John in Acts 3, when the gospel was being taken to the Jews, here in Acts 14 we have Paul and Barnabas when the gospel is being taken to the Gentiles. Very similar situation, Acts 3 to what we're about to read in verses 8 through 10, here in Acts 14. The scripture says, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Strikingly similar terminology to the narrative Luke penned back in Acts 3. In Acts 3, you had a guy who was lame from his mother's womb. Here you have a guy who's lame from his mother's womb. Back then, you had a guy who looked intently at Peter. Here you have a guy looking intently at Paul. Back then, you had a guy who leaped and walked. Here you have a guy who leaped and walked. Remember, the gospel is expanding. Started in Judea, went to the Samaritans, and now to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And there are many similarities to what happened when the gospel first came to the Jews and when it first came to the Gentiles, and this is another one of them that we have seen in the book of Acts. But whereas they were similar in what happened, chapter 3, and here in chapter 14, the result of what happened is very different here than what happened in chapter 3. Look at verses 11 through 18. It says, Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Look how exciting this is. You know why most Christians are bored with their Christianity? Because they sit in their buildings like little flower pots week after week. And If you go out and do those things which are dear to his heart, and what she commands us to do, excitement takes place. They're in the midst of pagan people who want to do a sacrifice to them. They're speaking in their Lyconian language, rather in the Greek language. Paul and Barnabas probably didn't even figure out what was going on, really. They, as you can see, they come running in after they had already gotten the animals together and everything, garlands, They're ready to do this insanity they probably talk to someone, you know, like, what's going on here? Oh, well, we think you're gods. And, yeah, we're going to do a sacrifice to you. So they rush in, they're trying to convince them not to do that. And it, it says in verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitude from sacrificing to them. So Paul appeals to nature itself, God's created order to point these pagans to the Lord. He lets them know, me and Barnabas are mere men, and your sacrificial activity is useless. It's futile. And then look what happens next in Luke's narrative. Verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. Remember, things turned ugly in both places regarding the Jews and the magistrates. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So the Jews from Antioch Pisidian, from Iconium, somehow find out the apostles are making headway in Lystra, and they come there to accomplish what they failed to do back in Iconium, namely to stone Paul. Now think of this. Paul has just gone from being treated as a god to being stoned in Luke's narrative here. This incident reminds you how Jesus came into Jerusalem triumphantly hailed, and just one week later they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, right? And this is what seasoned men of God understand. That people are fickle. That one day they will put you on a pedestal, and the next day they will despise and repudiate you. That is why a seasoned man of God doesn't grapple much with pride. He has had the stuffing knocked out of him this way numerous times in the past, so the praises of men do not go to his head. This is why the scriptures declare in 1 Timothy 3.6 that someone being considered for leadership within the church should not be a novice, should not be a young convert. A new convert, untried, untested. For as the scripture goes on to state, quote, Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Unquote. A novice gets a big head when men speak well of him. A seasoned man of God wonders when they will turn on him when they speak well of him. The praises of men mean something to the novice. The praises of men mean nothing to the seasoned man of God. Nothing at all. Mere noise in the background. <laughs> the praises of men. Let's be faithful and true to Christ. That's what matters. And they think Paul's dead, but he's not. Verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe, And in verses 21 and 22, it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned, as we saw on our map, to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch in Pisidia, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and look what they were saying as they were traveling. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Unquote. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. How do you think this statement lines up with American Christianity? How do you think this thinking lines up with Joel Osteen's form of Christianity? Most American Christians have never experienced tribulation. Um, Just listen to most ministers on the radio when they talk about hard times for Christians. It's laughable. They have never gone out and declared the truth of God's law, word and gospel to men, and that's why they've never suffered tribulation. And when this is the case, they have an oblique and untrue view of Christianity in the Christian life. We are soldiers of Christ. The worst place we can spend most of our time is in the encampment because it leads to soldiers' fights. Because it leads to stupidity. Soldiers are meant to fight and you see this? It's your sword. You are his ambassadors and you go out and make him known to men. Many have never experienced Tribulation because they don't go out to the people or to the magistrates. Many are bored with their Christianity, always looking for some new thing to dazzle them, some new teaching, you know, some new event to watch, to be entertained with, because they're bored in their Christianity. American Christianity desires a conflict free life. And Paul says here, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God, the exact opposite of a conflict-free life. They would condemn men like Paul, this I know, because they condemn men like us who go to the streets and to the magistrates to condemn for righteousness and point men to Christ. The churchmen do, and the Christians do. They condemn us. Their phony form of Christianity despises true Christianity. They are more interested in affirming men in their American lifestyles than they are in calling them to repentance of sin and faith in Christ. They are more interested in being liked than they are to confront the idols of our nation. The final verses say, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom, they had, in whom they had believed. And after they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, that port town you saw on the map. From there they sailed to Antioch in Syria, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Think what a joyous day this was. They had been gone for a long time. They didn't have tweets. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have texting. They didn't even have a, a phone. They didn't even have a rotary phone. So you were always left wondering. I wonder if they're still alive. And here they come back. What a time of rejoicing this was. And it says, Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. May God bless his word. Let's stand up and we'll close in prayer.